Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Check it out. It is the ultimate and commercial broker training for experienced agent. The website is CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Well, we have a special show for you today. Every year, PwC puts out a report with Urban Land Institute called Emerging Trends in Real Estate. And they've been doing it for years. It's an incredible report. You really got to check it out. We're going to talk about some of the highlights from this today and some takeaways to add value to your planning for the year ahead. Please welcome my guest. I have Tim Bodner here. He is real estate deals leader with PwC. And we have Byron Carlock. He's real estate practice leader with PwC here in Studio One. Gentlemen, so good to see you. Thank you, Michael. Good to see you. Uh, First of all, just remind our audience about this report, how long you've been doing it, and and how is this done? How is this created? So this is the 43rd year, and it's a a survey-based sentiment report uh, on uh, how people are thinking about the coming year, 2023. Interestingly, this year, uh, the survey opened in July and closed in September, and you could see a steady downward trend in the sentiment as we came closer to publication date. It was launched last week in Dallas at the fall meeting of the Urban Land Institute. Interesting, interesting. And you have some top 10 takeaways here that we're going to talk about and and catch on on some other uh, items that are in this report. We'll have a link to the report at the show website, CREshow.com, if you want to check out the report uh, while you're listening or or watching. And and number one was uh, normalizing uh, property market fundamentals. Tell us about that. I think, Michael, when you look across real estate operating fundamentals, transaction volume, trends in cap rates, we've been in a period of of such basically such a favorable period for so long that things are starting to come back to kind of what they were some some time ago. And I think our view is in in many respects, that's that's healthy for, for the markets. Yeah, I mean, we we can't have uh, interest-free free money, right, forever. That's, right. That's not really a good situation for it to be in, is it? No, and it's going to take a while to burn off some of the stimulus spending that has inflated the economy and certainly inflated mm-hmm. asset values. So I think normalization is an important step to uh, healing the industry, mm-hmm. taking some of the air out of the tires, and then moving toward a uh, a new a new state of normalcy. Yeah, and when you think about the the analysts uh, and and other folks in this industry, I guess there's a lot of folks that really haven't seen normal rates. Well, think about it. I mean, we've really had healthy growth in the industry since the great financial crisis. And we've had discipline in the capital markets that have kept us from overbuilding. And going into this downturn, it's very interesting. We've still got great demand characteristics in most product types. We'll talk about office later. That's 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 one where there's not as much demand, but still healthy demand and lots of dry powder. I'm not sure we've gone into a downturn like this with so much dry powder. And thirdly, when the Fed increases rates in 75 basis increments, as they did yesterday, they usually come down in 15s and 20s and 25s. So that alone tells us we're in for a period of two and a half to three years of renormalizing. Yeah. So, you know, with this rapid increase in uh, interest rates, 
to your point on normalization, you know, cap rates have to change, right? They're not going to go, uh, they're not going to match the interest rate changes, mm-hmm. but they have to change, right? Yeah, they do have to change. I think, yeah. what, I think what we're seeing for the most part is that, you know, the movements have been kind of small to date 15, 25 base points in, in sectors like multifamily and, and logistics and an office a little bit wider than that in some cases, 75 to 100 basis points. But mm-hmm. it's it's still selective and the bid is still a little bit hard to find in, in, in many markets. And so we'll see. But there are starting to be cap rate adjustments being observed yeah. in the activity. Yeah. And Michael, if you look at periods of downturn in the past, there's always a period of what we call the the season of price discovery. Right now, we're seeing that bid ask spread in the five to twenty percent range, but not a lot of transactions. The appraisals, the appraisers are really in a conundrum right now because there are not enough data points to justify downward valuations for the asset managers. So there's this appraisal lag that waits until there's enough transactions to support a downward valuation. But I think in our gut, we're feeling it through this period of the bid ask spread being in that range of 5 to 20%, depending on the asset type, the market, and the condition of the property. The better stuff, the flight to quality, is that the stuff that is trading, and the, the, the price diminution is not that great. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, we're seeing the price discovery, too, at, at our shop with folks really trying to figure out kind of where where we're landing. And we're seeing the same thing, very small changes in cap rates and industrial and multifamily, but but larger when you get to other other property types. Um, you know, and I was uh, speaking at an appraisal convention um, a few weeks ago, and that was their question. They were concerned about, hey, what do we do when a bank or someone comes to us for an appraisal and our comps are with old interest rate closed loans, right? Yeah, and, right. you know, and, and yeah. So I think one of the things that, uh, you know, I told them is, hey, you know what, you got to talk to the people on the front line doing the deals. And, you know, we're seeing, uh, you know, to give an example, we had a portfolio we looked at where we would have went out at a seven cap, you know, eight, six or eight months ago, and we wouldn't go out unless it was an eight cap today. Uh, for for office, so I, I think you know, as these sales close, we'll start having some comps pretty quickly here because you know, talking about volume being down, we're seeing volume down about fifty percent on trades, but that's maybe not all that bad when you think about how ferocious twenty twenty one was, Correct. right? That's with right. the with the with the changes and potential changes we had in ten thirty ones and and tax rates, there was a lot of lot of. <laughs> 2021 was a a very Mm -hmm. significant volume year when you look at it over the last you know 10 or 15 years if you looked as of the we'll get kind of the third quarter numbers here uh finalized in the next couple weeks but um through kind of the second quarter and and half of the third quarter we were about proximate to 2020 in the aggregate across asset classes in terms of total volume so it's down but it's down relative to a yeah. a very high benchmark. And so much of 2021, as you pointed out, was tax-driven out of fear that there were going to be major changes to the legislation yeah. that didn't necessarily happen. But there's not any pending legislation this year that would necessarily push transactions. And there's this bid-ask spread in the price discovery. What would you guys say to folks that maybe haven't uh, weren't as heavy into real estate before the Great Recession? And I don't know why you're calling it great. I didn't think it was that great, Byron. You know, <laughs> what would you say to those folks when they're maybe they've been in the business for 10 years? 
Well, if you think about this season of inflation we're having, real estate has always been the best inflation hedge. So those that have been under-allocated in real estate are really thinking their allocations for hard assets. And I think that's probably a good time to be making investments, and frankly, at better prices than they would have gotten you know, one and two years ago. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of real estate as an inflation hedge. Many of the institutions are unable to increase their allocations even because they want to because of the denominator effect on their equity and, and uh, bond investments. So we're going to see those who have capital to deploy perhaps shy away from the liquid markets and look at real estate as an appropriate inflation hedge. Yeah. I think we've talked about this in other sessions, Michael, but when we one of the things we, we look at uh, across sectors uh, at PwC is the significant shift of power occurring from public markets to private markets. And so certainly what Byron's talk about in terms of the denominator effect with pensions and private equity is real, but there is a significant widening of the private capital universe where high net worth individuals, family offices are really starting to um, look at, at going aggressively into, into real estate, particularly mixed use uh, real estate is an example where we're seeing a lot of that come, come through. Yeah, it's a great time to buy. I think uh, when people aren't in real estate, ask me about uh, the market and timing. I said, well, look, if you're not in real estate, if you're at a cocktail party and everybody's talking about how great the market is and they're flipping contracts and all that, uh, you should be selling. <laughs> and if they're talking about how tough the market is and how rough everything is, you should be buying. Yeah, this, right. will, this will be a season that's appropriate for what we call rescue capital. Right, right. Yeah. All right, well, let's go to, to uh, number two, and that was structural uh, shifts or is structural shifts. You know, this pandemic has kind of changed uh, uh, lifestyles for a lot of people, right, and the way business is done. Yeah, I think the biggest thing here, Michael, that <clears throat> that we, we observed is just the shift in how people are living, working, and playing. That The idea where people want to want to commute an hour, two hours to, to get into the office in certain markets around the world is kind of going away. And there's this idea that they want to be proximate to where they work. They want to be around their friends. They want to be close to, to, to entertainment. And that's having a significant impact on, on the office market in, uh, in particular. But it's also driving activity in other other sectors like multifamily and, and some of the retail and the, and the like that we're, that we're observing. Yeah. So. yeah, it truly changed the way we live. And so we're seeing the boomerang back to the cities. Most of our gateway cities have rents that are at or above the pre-pandemic levels. But people are going in three days a week, generally, and living further out so that that commute is not as painful if you're going in three days a week versus five days a week. And frankly, we've become a society that values that flexibility. It's going to be interesting to see if that dynamic changes. We're just now beginning to see some shifts where employers are demanding folks to come back. It'll be interesting to see if they do. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I think the three-day-a-week uh, uh, in the office, two days work from home seems to be the magic number right now. Yeah, and I'll just give the solution to the entire world right now for Michael Bull. All right, here it is. It's a four-day week. Let's compromise, right? So we, have, we all have the benefits of being together, right, in our office environments and all the benefits to us uh, as employees and employers. But, uh, hey, let's, let's give Fridays off. I think I get that much done on Fridays, right? Well, last week I had Gensler on stage at the ULI conference talking about changed office behaviors, changed ways that we're using space. And, of course, Gensler's an architecture firm, and they are spending their time redesigning workforce environments. Mm -hmm. And they showed us some really crazy, interesting examples of things they're doing for folks to create 
visitation to the office as a destination, not an obligation, which I thought was an interesting phrase. Yeah. And then last week I was with an office landlord who said, if you go down to his loading dock, it looks more like a furniture store than an office building. And people were literally throwing dividers and cubicles into the dumpster replacing them with sofas, coffee tables, lamps, like living room environments, so that when you're in the office, it's collaborative time for mentoring, training, whiteboarding, business planning, product introduction, things that uh, really require one-on-one um, -on -one interaction. Yeah. And then heads down work, it's okay if you do it from home. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's well you're it. also seeing it too, Byron. I think we see this across our our client base in terms of what's happening in in, hosp in the hospitality industry and there still is significant momentum in in leisure uh, related travel and the blurring of the line between business related travel and 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 personal travel and what some have called leisure and the conference travel and things like that still business travel still slow to come back so that's another kind of structural shift that we focus on and when we think about what what's what's coming out of the pandemic that's interesting and it kind of combines with what we're talking about on the office yeah i sure enjoyed uh, conferences coming back and and speaking at events and being around the people it's like you know if you think about it if you were the uh, richest man in the world and you had everything you ever wanted but you were by yourself It'd be a little lonely wouldn't it it would be terrible right it's the people around us that that make life interesting and fun um, well, let's talk about number three, and it's really about you know allocation, right? Where's where's the equity going? What, what did you guys see there? Yeah, well, I think when you look at overall kind of capital flows, there is a, a slowdown in capital coming in to real estate. Byron touched on it recently, but there also are a lot of market participants that are kind of moving to the sidelines, and and the most active bid right now is the all cash bid. And there's certain pockets of investors, particularly if you look at some of the foreign investors from places in Asia and the Middle East that are really aggressively uh, kind of being on their front foot in this market because they view it as an advantage. And do you expect the foreign investment to increase uh, a year ahead? We're seeing interesting flows from ultra high net worth families around the world seeing the U.S. as a safe investment haven. Mm -hmm. They're also desirous of placing all cash. As you know, the debt markets have really constrained in the last 60 to 75 days. Underwriting is much tighter. If you want a loan, it's uh, under much stricter terms. So the all cash buyer obviously has an advantage and that uh, ultra high net worth family office from around the world. I think there's 7,600 of them now uh, that are uh, looking for those kind of investments. Yeah, I mean, it's a great time really to have dry powder if there's less buyers that you're competing with, right? Whether you're a business looking to, to lease or acquire space or an investor, right? It's an incredible time. Well, let's jump to number four, which was a big one um, to our economy, right? And that's housing. Uh, it seems like, you know, you watch housing and you, and you watch the economy follow it in commercial real estate. What do you guys see there as far as housing and affordability? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the macro point, Michael, is that housing affordability is still an issue. And even in those markets that in, the, in certain pockets of the Sun Belt that we saw a lot of population migration are starting to feel that, too. And so there is a uh, uh, an issue that needs to be addressed uh pervasively across the, the U.S. when it comes to housing. Yeah, some skeptics are saying the American dream is gone, that home ownership is uh, no longer available. Uh, I think there's still the dream. There, I think nearly 30 million young people still living at home that would be normally in household formation years. That We are becoming a more renter-dominated society. Uh, the renting lifestyle allows for flexibility and transience without the burden of having to sell a home. 
Uh, and so we're, we are seeing that preference right now. I don't think the American dream has gone away. Uh, as we look at this intergenerational wealth transfer down to the millennials and Gen Z, the bulk of that wealth is the result of the savings, the forced savings of a 30-year self-amortizing mortgage. And so there is still the desire for home ownership and that forced savings account, if you will. But it's it had become very expensive. And so it's not a bad thing that pricing might be coming off in some of our cities. However, in our major cities, pricing is still uh, requiring 45 to 50 percent and sometimes even more of one's paycheck to own. And that's... Um, that dynamic makes it very tough. We underproduced housing for the last 10 years, and we may be between, I'd say, let's say, 5 million units short. Uh, the growth of the build-to-rent phenomena is worth watching because that does give a bridge between the, the higher-density multifamily and the path to uh, single-family home ownership. I think it's an, it's, your point is an interesting one because there's also a lot of innovation happening in in the residential ecosystem to address kind of what byron's talking about where whether you're a renter or you're you're trying to become an owner where you have the ability to build equity and and kind of create wealth that's kind of becoming an issue because of this housing affordability thing the other thing that uh was touched on and and it, uh byron's right to to call it out is you know the institutionalization of the single family residential sector as a as a sector you know coming out of the, the Great Recession was viewed as an unrealistic business model. I think people have proven it. And what is happening for sure still right now is that there is a lot of the, the share that institutional investors have of overall uh, transaction activity is growing. Yeah. And we expect it to grow further. Yeah. It's interesting when you look at the, the growth of, of build for rent, the, these homes, is that, you know, you really can't put a swing set, uh, your own private swing set at your apartment complex. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? right. If you're going to grow a family, you might want that, that, that single family lifestyle. Well, what does this affordability, these rising rates for homes and the, and the affordability issue of buying homes, what does that mean for the multifamily world that when we've had incredible rent increases for the last several years, should we expect that to continue? Look, I think you're you're seeing it in in many markets around the U.S. where you know the the rent increases on new and renewal leases are is starting to kind of soften a bit and come down for a whole host of reasons, including what one that Byron mentioned, where it's it's gotten to be a point where it's such a significant portion of people's paychecks that it can't continue to go up at this pace forever. So. There's favorable tailwinds overall for multifamily, but the pace of the increases, you know, I think would is is normalizing to go back to the first theme and it's certainly leveling gonna, out. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but there's been double-digit rent growth, and I yeah. I don't think that's um, sustainable. But we yeah. do have supply shortages that are going to have to be addressed. Yeah. I'm hoping that some of the softness in office may lead to conversion of facilities for buildings where that's conducive. Some buildings, it's not conducive, but hopefully that will add to the supply. The cost elements are beginning to moderate. The supply chain is beginning to um, get over its year of, of two years of backlog. Um, lumber prices have already come down. Hopefully concrete and steel will a bit as well. And that will be an appropriate incentive along with some municipal incentives like were announced in Chicago last week to encourage developers to look at conversions with set-asides for affordable 
for especially for service workers in the 80% of median income range will uh, will alleviate some of these supply constraints. Yeah. All right, well, so we're number five, which uh, will close out this uh, first segment of this show. Um, and at number five is uh, give me quality, give me niche. Tell us about that. Look, I think it's, you know, the first part of that give me quality is really focused on the office sector. You know, the the best quality office buildings that have ESG certifications, there's incredible demand and, and, and the rent increases that people are seeing in there are quite strong. The Class B suburban office, you know, that's where there's a little bit more of a of a structural issue that needs to be addressed, and it gets at the heart of what what Byron was just referring to, where people need to look at <clears throat> that space and figure out what what the the higher or best use for that that yeah. uh, piece that piece for that piece of real estate is. The second part of it is really a continuation of what we've seen for for some time, which is the widening of what people consider to be investable real estate asset classes. So we've seen for some time a, a significant bid in data centers, self-storage, medical office, student housing, and that's really just a, a continuation of it. And interestingly enough, we actually think that could accelerate because of some things that are happening around the margin, such as uh, the indexes kind of including kind of a plus component to it where they're actually starting to track what the performance is in these asset classes, which historically wasn't the case. Sure. And I, I would add life sciences to that. Mm-hmm. Um, the new, new, um, in new innovations in multifamily to include co-location apartments where traditional multifamily is now taking lessons from student housing so that you're renting a room instead of a whole apartment. Uh, so there's, there's the niche, the niche side is worth watching. It's a small component of the four major food groups historically of office, industrial, uh, multifamily and retail, but these niches are seeing uh, big growth and big allocations. Yeah. Yeah. That co-living, uh, apartment, rentals industry that was really interesting to me we did our first show on that i'm like wow this and they've got it down right if student housing can do it uh the regular housing can do it and and it can help with affordability and and getting back to giving me quality you know if you're if you've if your employees and you're and you're an employer and you value having people together and the benefits for them and your company then you want that quality right you want that space that brings people in and and has the look uh has the nice furniture and the the, the fresh flowers and everything right? amenities service mm-hmm. um you know the hospitality industry has taught us a lot right. that's got application across all the product categories mm-hmm. uh retail especially you know the retail that offers an experience is doing pretty well yeah yeah, that's true. All right, well, that's the top five. We're going to take a quick break. And we'll be right back, and we'll go to the number six through ten. So stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Would you like to be the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com.
Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today we're covering Emerging Trends in Real Estate, the report done by ULI and PwC that's fantastic every year. We'll have a copy or a link to the actual report at CREshow.com. My guests are Tim Bodner. He's Real Estate Deals Leader with PwC and Byron Carlock. He's Real Estate Practice Leader with PwC. We're here in Studio One and we went through the top five. Uh, we'll put a link there if you haven't seen or heard that one yet. But now let's go to uh, number six, finding a higher purpose. Tell us about that. Well, I think with, this is a season, even though we've got higher interest rates, uh, we have begun an effort to begin reimagining our built environment. The intersection between uh, living, working, walking, enjoying our cities. Uh, there's a real interesting push for helping people accomplish what's known as the 15-minute lifestyle where you can live, work, walk, eat within a walking distance and not have to spend so much time in your car. Improvements in our rapid transit system. We've been talking about this for years, but the idea of moving toward this driverless car environment that we expect in within the next 10 years, um, more utilization of public transportation. I just read a book um, by Roger Scruton, a philosopher from Britain that talked about in times of ideological distancing, which of course we see that in our country right now, things that we do agree on across world history are things of art, culture, beauty, green space, architecture, gathering places. And you think about this is a great time for us to reimagine our built environments and force the cooperation between public interests, private interests, and philanthropy to do so. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things that is embedded in there, Byron, that we're seeing uh, significant momentum is is what what's happening in and around uh, sports and and live entertainment, and how many of these franchises in areas like Chicago, uh, down in down in Tennessee, in in Southern California, are really LA. leaning LA. in LA yeah. as a great example, are really leaning in to to kind of addressing exactly what 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 Byron is addressing saying like well, we have a role to play in the community we ought to kind of reimagine what what life is like around our stadiums and so this is that's an area to to watch is these franchises around the country and candidly even internationally which isn't a focus here but in the US what they're what they're doing is there's a, there's a lot of uh, momentum and activity there yeah and if any of your <clears throat> listeners or viewers get to Atlanta uh, the battery where uh, the Atlanta Braves play is a right. really good it's a nice example. community now yeah, yeah right it's very well done and when you think about the the pandemic and and the worst thing about the kind of going to the office seems to be with employees the commute Mm-hmm. Right, that seems to be one of the one of the worst things. And I guess you know, if we're in a mixed use development, you know, where where live, work, and play in the same fifteen minute area, that kind of takes care of the the worst problem of going to the office, right? But the, that's right. I mean, a good example of that, and staying sticking with the theme we're just on, is what is what the Cowboys are doing in and around Dallas with kind of office buildings proximate to, to kind of their stadium, creating this community ecosystem. That I think is directly on point with what you're saying there. And it's not a new idea. If you read the book, The Pattern Language, this is how development began and grew in Europe. Mm-hmm. Sadly, after World War II, we, we really screwed it up with too much suburban sprawl. Yeah. We've been talking years about turning that inward and then filling in and making communities around what we've built as opposed to expanding that built environment. Let's, let's better use what we've got. Yeah, I, I used to have two homes uh uh don't hate me i'm helping the american drum spending money right i'm helping the economy uh but now i went down to one home and 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 a rental and a mixed-use development i really love it 
I bet. Just, just I bet walk. you're walking to work now. Yeah, I can walk to work, but I live in Atlanta. We drive cars. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> We're a car environment. All right. So let's talk about uh, number uh, seven, rewards and growing pains in the uh, Sunbelt areas, kind of the Sunbelt, the smile states have, have been doing really well. Well, I think two two examples of note. I mean, the greatness of living in Nashville and Austin, for example, two of the highest quality of life cities in that growth spurt through the smile states, are now having to face the fact that their infrastructure is strained. Hmm. And so those are growing pains, and it's going to take a lot of money to think about creating um, rapid transit in those markets and changing the dynamic between the auto lifestyle and the walking lifestyle. Others are also looking at, uh, you know, what what kind of cities do they want to be? I think Tennessee and Texas, for example, have really embraced the idea of being business friendly, no state income tax states, and have enjoyed the population growth and corporate relocation activity from that. Now they have to think about absorbing that population and making the quality of life match the growth opportunity. Right. And there's still markets, though, that investors and companies like, right? That's right. I mean, as an example, to use Nashville as an example, that still is the number one market on, on this year's survey. Austin's still in the, in the top 10. There's still still growth. But to Byron's point, there's some structural things around infrastructure and the like that they need to be addressed. Yeah. And let's tease. We're going to talk about the top 10 markets from this report from one to 10. So stay, stay tuned for that. Okay. And uh, the next one involves number eight, uh, infrastructure, right? Smarter, fair cities. Talk to us about that. Yeah. I think when, you know, in our last edition of Emerging Trends in Real Estate, we focused on uh, infrastructure and how it was being driven by state and local governments. What we've seen happen more recently is the federal government, you know, starting to step up and, and do things through the infrastructure, the infrastructure bill through the Inflation Reduction Act. They're addressing some real societal uh, issues around uh, transportation, around broadband access, around uh, addressing kind of some of the historical issues that were created by uh, certain development activities in terms of dividing neighborhoods. And so. Uh, we kind of look at what's happening in and around infrastructure as kind of a, a way that will kind of help overall real estate investment and, and growth in the sector. And open new sub-markets. I think as we address our food deserts and our healthcare deserts with incentives to do it right this time and open up neighborhoods for uh, greater inclusion and easier access, I think that's all good for society. And I think I, I see our industry stepping up to be leaders in that. But once again, I go back to that triangle of when you can marry the public interest with private investment that makes sense and philanthropy, great things can happen. Yeah. And this government investment in infrastructure, how big a deal is that for the commercial real estate industry? Well, I'll use an example from Dallas. I'll use an example where uh, University uh, of Texas at Southwestern Medical Center Mm -hmm. has taken a large tract of land in South Dallas in Redbird to create a new healthcare center. And around it, you see developers responding to create a community around that healthcare center, which has traditionally been a healthcare desert. So with that will come new food offerings to help with the what could be perceived as a food desert as well, and then create living opportunities around it that enhance the quality of life for that quadrant of the city. Yeah. Well, let's go to number nine, and involves climate change, uh, growing impact on real estate. So uh, we're feeling it, huh? Yeah, look, I think um, <clears throat> you're know, driven a lot by by investors, right? And and there's a number of actions that have been taken by 
by certain real estate trade organizations like PREA and, and, and the like. Nate Creve is another example, as well as by certain regulators like the SEC. Which, and so companies are starting to kind of lean into this. I think the interesting thing to observe here is how long does this really fundamentally take when you look at uh, the investment horizon that certain real estate investors have, how much do they want to lean in and invest the capital versus just insure insure against it? And how, how does that push pull kind of play out o- over time? But I think for sure, you know, the, the, the impact and uh, of climate change on real estate and the realization that real estate, the stakeholders have an important role to play is, is here for sure. So ESG breaks down environmental, social, and governance. The environmental piece is really stepping up uh, its importance in delineation between buildings that have um, the quality that tenants are wanting to use, the qualities that lenders are wanting to lend against, and the qualities that investors are willing to invest in. And those that don't are going to fall into a category that may be subject to what's known as the brown discount and they have to be improved to meet the quality standards of the environmental expectations of a property, air quality, energy usage and efficiency, um, parking, in many cases reductions, improved um, green space, landscaping, changing the nature of the real, using real estate to change the nature of the carbon footprint because real estate is the largest producer of carbon through steel and concrete. Mm-hmm. So it's better to redevelop something to, than to develop something ground up, but it requires investment to bring those standards up to new levels of relevance and those that don't may be penalized. Yeah, well, good point. I mean, we have office tenant reps here at our shop who, who work in Atlanta and, you know, some of these environmental issues, um, you know, the, the properties don't get on the list, right? Uh, you look at the building we're in, it's a very nice building. We're on the top floor, great views over the trees, but you still have to touch the front doors uh, to get in and out. Uh, and even though it's an elevator building and, and, and a dense environment, and that, that just seems archaic at this point. Lots of innovation will drive us toward higher standards. Also, the SEC is going to require disclosure. You're going to have to disclose the um, environmental nature of your business and its carbon footprint along with your financial statements in a coming disclosure by the SEC if you're a public company. And then voluntarily, uh, as a private enterprise, to meet the expectations of your lenders and investors. So my, my carbon footprint, I'm not going to do well with my performance car and my performance boat. <laughs> I thought I was helping the economy. Right? <laughs> uh, I'm going to have a poor rating. I probably already have a poor rating. Yeah. So, uh, well, let's talk. And that leads us into number 10, action through regulation. Yeah, I think, look, there increasingly is, is regulation that's impacting the, the real estate uh, industry at large. The two things that kind of really came out through the survey is is what cities are are doing in and around rent control, kind of across a number of different municipalities. Uh, Minnesota is a state where there's been a number of issues, but it's it's broader than that, as well as vacancy taxes. And so, you know, how governments kind of use those things like that in order to address some of the things we talked about earlier around affordability is is an area that. Uh, certainly is there's a lot of momentum and claiming out on the surface. What's your opinion? Should they be exercising rent control or does that really make things worse in the end? 
well, it often tracks with um, ideological swings on the Hill, but policy does drive action. Uh, we see what happens in times of tax policy changes that affect the industry. The developers and investors react. The rent control issue is a hot topic, and it's on the ballot in many states um, each season. Uh, and California has probably led that charge along for a long time. Um, in Chicago last week, there was a new proclamation that would inspire offer incentives from the city's um, TIF programs to inspire developers to do office conversions on those that have exceeded their vacancy um, uh, expectations, to give them incentives to convert those buildings to residential if they will uh, set aside 40% of the units for 80% of median income affordability. So I think policy does drive action, and we're seeing a government that is um, using policy to do that. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to talk now about the top 10 uh, markets as rated from the emerging trends in real estate. And then we'll just kind of recap, kind of get your um, ending thoughts for the audience related to the the entire report and kind of the, one of the main takeaways you get from there. But let's talk, let's go number 10 first and we'll do the, uh, the, the backwards countdown, right? So the city was number 10? Charlotte. Charlotte. Yeah. Another Sunbelt Smile City, yeah. doing very well. Financial services uh, leads that market, but it's also a very diversified economy, high quality of life, and the um, the big bank merger that chose to make Charlotte its headquarters has been a big driver there over the last two years. And number nine? F Phoenix. Phoenix. Yeah. I think, look, that's a, a classic, uh, you know, beneficiary of the mi migration trend where a lot of people are moving in and around to Phoenix. There's a lot of good things going on in, in Phoenix with <clears throat> the the Super Bowl being there next year, the uh, a number of different golf tournaments, and still an area where a market where uh, people uh, believe there's a significant quality of life advantage relative to a number of other places. And la largest, largest concentration of built-to-rent communities right now for people to come stick their toe in the water to see if they, if they like desert living. Interesting. Let's go to number eight. Who made number eight? So Boston, I think, is interesting because yeah. it's the only gateway city on the list this year, and it's probably driven mostly by the life sciences and education industries. And there is a lot of R&D, a lot of um, new product introduction in the life sciences space, in the research space, and that's really driving that Boston position. And why do you think some of these primary markets are not making the top ten? Well, there, well, recovering from the pandemic, there was a huge boomerang out, and I think next year we'll start seeing some gateway cities back on because, mm -hmm. as we mentioned, the boomerang has has taken people back uh, to the city. So I think um, that's that's the biggest reason. But I will tell you, there are also some leadership challenges in some of our gateway cities that have got to be addressed mm -hmm. to deal with uh, overcoming the stigma of defunding the police, fear of crime in the streets. Um, anti-shoplifting laws, um, cleanliness. Uh, I'm really worried about places like San Francisco where the return to the office has been very slow and the tech industry has uh, allowed people to continue working from home. But when you go visit, it's, it's, it's dirty and inspires fear. 
Yeah. And I think that's going to require leadership in our historic and gateway cities to really step up and try to change those perceptions. I hope that's not too harsh, but I, yeah. I, it, came, it came across big in the survey this year. Yeah. Well, that the, the results are in, right? It is it is what it is. And and when we're selling office buildings around the country and we and we bring the group in to, to look at it, you know, they're looking at those. Things, they are. Right. They, right. They've, they've got to think about it. All right. And number seven. In yeah. The I mean, countdown. this is Miami here. Miami. And, and I think it's, you know, relatively self-explanatory. There's a, a significant growing financial services industry in Miami, but it's broader than that. Tech, tech is 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 kind of significantly investing in there. Is a huge venture capital ecosystem uh, in Miami, and you know, weather, tax, tax law, and the, and the like are all quality of life are all reasons for why we're seeing that. Maybe the new Southern Gateway City. Yeah, yeah. Number six. Uh, Raleigh Durham, uh, I think Raleigh Durham has been on the list for several years now, but it's it's really a great example of regionalism capitalizing on the East Coast tech sector growth in a particular concentrated area where the private sector and the education sector has come together to do great things around technology. And so it, uh, some people are calling it the Silicon Valley of the East, uh, the head, the uh, Housing growth there has spoken for itself as a major uh, driver for people to come in and have a re- relatively affordable place to live while enjoying the sector's growth. And it's in that southern smile state where you get a nice nice environment for weather as well. And you get southerners who are smiling. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And city that made number five on the list this year. Tampa, St. Petersburg. Yeah. Again, similar <clears throat> similar kind of you know thoughts as, as we were talking about with Phoenix. Uh, favorable place to live. There's a lot of uh, interesting things going on in and around Phoenix with, uh, or and with around Tampa with with sports and live entertainment and the like. And uh, it's again a beneficiary of migration trends. Yeah, I mean Florida's been really doing well, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, all right, and then number four uh, is a, a city that uh, did it drop uh, at number four? Austin? Did it? What so was the, the, like? stand, the standard deviation among the top five was pretty tight. So okay. I, I don't think we can necessarily talk too much about the rankings. But Austin, yeah. as you know, has been a tech magnet from the California companies mm-hmm. uh, seeking uh, lower cost working environments, uh, f- exodus from high state income tax. Mm-hmm. And Austin is a um, really growing tech center. And, and I think I think that's going to continue. As we mentioned earlier, it's going to learn to deal with some of its infrastructure challenges, but it has become a tech alternative to California. Okay. And then number three on the list? Yeah. Go ahead. We should be asking Yeah, we should ask Mike. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's Atlanta. Atlanta. And we, we talked about it for a whole host of reasons, but it's mm-hmm. favorable residential markets, a mm-hmm. uh, lot of tech companies moving in uh, to Atlanta. We were talking earlier about, about Midtown off, mm-hmm. off air, but... Um, it's just a market where there's a lot of interest and in, in people find it uh, great infrastructure and airport and the like. So. I think a couple of stats that are really interesting is the growth of the studio industry has really changed right. its profile in the media industry. Um, and it's really, some people are calling it the Hollywood of the East. Uh, but also 60 colleges and universities feed into a very diverse workforce here. And with diversity and inclusion being such an important topic in business today, Atlanta's a great city for that because yeah. it's a, it is an inclusive city. 
Yeah. When I was young, uh, one of my uh, nicknames uh, was Hollywood, but the other <laughs> nickname I had was Conceited. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the city that made number two this year. You've got to take this one. Well, I'm from Dallas, and it is, it is still the yeah. number one corporate relocation market in the country. It uh, is a very attractive uh, workforce environment, relatively affordable, is trying to address some of its infrastructure issues, and is um, – uh, a research center for healthcare at UT Southwestern, uh, great uh, educational feeders with colleges and universities, and it's uh, another city in the heart of the the smile uh, delineation across America with no state income tax. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. All right, let's do a drum roll for number one. Number one city is Nashville. Nashville. It's not your grandfather's country music capital anymore. <laughs> It's a financial services, education, healthcare uh, hub in the center of the country. And it's a high quality of life. Enjoy the great music of its country music history, but it's a wonderful place to uh, live, work, walk, enjoy a vibrant downtown, cultural centers. Um, relocations from the Northeast uh, have proven that there's a workforce to meet their needs in the financial services industry, and uh, it's a beautiful city. Yeah, I grew up in Atlanta, but uh, my mother told me I was born in Nashville, but I don't really remember that that that, that day. <laughs> All right, so this this report is pretty incredible. I mean, how many pages is this? Uh, oh my goodness, 120 this year. 120. This is a great report, so do uh, do check it out. We'll have a link at series show. And before you guys leave us, you know, uh, it, here we are at uh, what uh, November 2022. The world's been changing, interest rates spiking. Um, what would you leave the audience with to think about about the report and, and the market moving forward? Well, I think my advice is let's proceed with caution and more equity. Uh, it's, it's, we've enjoyed cheap debt for a long time. We have to adjust our underwriting now to the realities of higher, higher debt costs, but celebrate the fact that we are remaking our cities. There is still demand for these product types. Retail continues its march forward through its transformation. The top three concerns going into 2023 were inflation, interest rates, and the impact of ESG and climate change. Those are realities we're going to have to adapt to, and that may change the uh, transaction velocity temporarily. But the demand characteristics driving growth in the real estate industry are still there. And real estate is everywhere. We all need space to live, work, and function, and to gather. And so let's do this responsibly this time and, and make our cities beautiful again. Well said. I think there's people clapping on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well said, I. No, you got to add something to this. I mean, this report is so so chucked full of great information, and uh, you guys have been been really involved in it. Yeah, look, I I mean, I think Byron summarized it well, but I think the the reality is it was it's been so good for so long that there needed to be some level of normalization, but there still is significant uh, opportunity and. Uh, that's what we tend to focus on. Well, uh, it seems like uh, back in the day, uh, I don't know, what was it, 20 years ago, the, everything was a tent cap, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting when we, when we see people that have been in the business for uh, 10 years and they, 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 they look at these interest rates and go, oh, my, man, this is terrible. I remember when I, we got a 12% interest rate on a deal, we're like so excited. <laughs> well, this is awesome. Well, think about the, the, the average analyst in a real estate shop today yeah. has never seen a downturn 
So yeah. I think Michael, you and I are probably on our fourth. Yeah. And so it's 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 good learning. I think the best learning comes during those times. Yeah. Well said. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for the great information. Thanks for the report as well. Thanks for being in Studio One. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. Thank All you right. very much. And thank you for joining us around the country. Thanks for sharing the show. And please let us know what you think. We appreciate hearing from you. You can find all our social media contacts and everything at commercialrealestateshow.com. And until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Buxton. Take leasing site selection and due diligence to the next level. Make the right decisions with on-demand mobile data. Visit buxtonco.com. By Bull Realty. For proven commercial real estate asset and occupancy solutions, contact me. My email is michael at bullrealty.com. By Commercial Agent Success. Expert level commercial real estate broker training. Cloud Access One, up to 21 one-hour videos. Visit CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Thank you for reviewing, subscribing, and sharing America's commercial real estate show.